Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This episode was made possible by James Cropcho and Ryan Samarakun, who made generous monthly donations through Patreon. Visit HiFiNation.org to support the show through a one-time or monthly donation. From Vassar College, you're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Ah, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. Uh, I am going to... So my name is Barbara Carlin, and I was born in Gothenburg, Sweden, in uh, May of 1954. Barbara Carlin tells quite a story about how life unfolded in her early childhood. In fact, she wrote a memoir about it as an adult, and from there was given a chance meeting with a man named Buddy Alias. Elias was the last living cousin of a relative, really, of Anna Frank, as well as a very, very famous actor in Germany and Switzerland, and he passed away a couple of years ago. He took as his life mission after the war to talk about Anna Frank, first together with Otto Frank, Anna Frank's father. And Otto Frank actually lived uh, with Bodelias until he remarried again. Barbara was a childhood author in Sweden before growing up to be a mounted police officer there. Budi and his wife, Gerti, uh, they live in uh, Basel, uh, Switzerland, where my publisher that published my uh, earlier books, he published those books in the 90s. So I had a very close relationship with Thomas, my publisher. Her publisher tells her that he's arranged a meeting with her and a famous person in Boston, where she's giving a talk about her upcoming memoir. But he doesn't tell her who it is. He wanted the meeting to be spontaneous. It was important to find out how Barbara and Buddy would react to each other. I was kind of used to that because Thomas always had people that he wanted me to meet. and So I, I knocked on the door and Buddy opened... And at the moment I saw him, I knew who he was. And I just looked at him and I said, uh, Buddy, is that really you? And, and he looked at me and, and he just said, Anne, come here. Buddy was my, my, uh, one of my biggest idols as I grew up as Anne Frank. He was an ice skater, and uh, he was funny, and uh, he was just uh, an incredible uh, person in my life before we got captured or before we, we moved to Amsterdam. Buddhist father decided to move to uh, Switzerland, that that was a safer place to go, while Uto decided to go to Holland, where he already had businesses, and he felt that that was a safer place to go. 
and the Buddhist family was the one that survived. And he just took me and, and hugged me, and I don't know how long we stood there. We were crying and holding each other, but it was just absolutely incredible to almost felt like I came home. So uh, we we sat together, him and I, on, alone for like, about two hours. We we talked about memories we had, and he didn't believe in reincarnation before this meeting. And then all of a sudden, he was just absolutely 100% sure that uh, I was his long-lost cousin. So you can imagine the reaction when it came out in big headlines that Budili, as the president of the foundation, is declaring that Anne Frank has been reborn. What an incredible pressure came on him that how can you say something like this and do you understand what this could mean uh, legally? And uh, they absolutely demanded him to resign as the president. And he was torn apart. And Buddy and I and his family stayed in touch. I always stayed there when I came to Basel to give my presentations. I always stayed with Buddy and Bambi. And when he came to the United States, he and his wife, they always visited with me. So we had a wonderful relationship behind the door, so to speak. A large segment of the world's population believes in reincarnation of some form or another. Foundational texts in both Western and Eastern philosophy include explicit arguments for reincarnation. It's part of every major religion in India. The succession of the Dalai Lama in Tibetan Buddhism is determined by finding the reincarnation of the previous Dalai Lama, typically boys under the age of four who have past life memories. And even among the Abrahamic religions, which explicitly deny reincarnation, you'll find a surprising number of people who believe in it. A Pew Research study in 2009 found that almost a quarter of American Christians believe in reincarnation. And the number is even higher among Catholics in Britain and Spain. In fact, many of the people who make a claim to a previous life are very young children, too young to have any coherent religious beliefs. I'm Jim Tucker. I am a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. I found someone who studies the phenomena of past life memories. Well, all told, here at the University of Virginia, we've studied over 2,500 cases of young children who report memories of past lives. The average age when a child starts talking about a past life, is 35 months. So it's usually around the time of their third birthday, they're two or three. Now, sometimes it's later than that. And then typically by the time they're six or seven, they have stopped talking about them and pretty much just go on with their lives. There's no reason to think that these reports indicate any uh, mental illness. We've done psychological testing with a number of them, and the, the only thing that really comes out is the children tend to be quite intelligent and quite verbal, uh, but otherwise they, they seem to be psychologically perfectly normal like everyone else. Is 
there a pattern to the kind of memories that they report? Yeah, they tend to focus on events or people from near the end of the previous life. The average interval between the death of the previous person and the birth of the child is four and a half years. The median interval, meaning half or shorter, half or longer, uh, is only 16 months. They tend to be quite recent. 70% of them talk about a life that ended by some sort of unnatural means. Murder, suicide, accident, combat. Sometimes the children will have nightmares about those or they will talk about them a great deal during the day. It more or less seems as if the memories just sort of pick up where they left off in the last life. A number of them have even birthmarks or birth defects that match wounds the previous person got. But one American case is a little boy named James Leininger. His parents are just this Christian couple in Louisiana, and, and his father in particular is quite opposed to the idea of reincarnation. But around the time of James's second birthday, he started having horrible nightmares multiple times a week in which he would kick his legs up in the air and scream, airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. And then during the day, he would take his little toy airplanes and say, airplane crash on fire and slam them into the coffee table over and over again. In fact, his parents have a picture of the coffee table with dozens of scratches and dents on it. So he looked like a kid who had been traumatized, uh, but he hadn't been through any trauma, at least, you know, at least in this life. Soon after his second birthday, his parents were able to have several conversations with him where he could talk about this material while he was awake. And he said how his plane had crashed on fire, how it had been shot down by the Japanese, and how he had flown a Corsair, which was a type of plane that was developed during World War II. And he also said one day that he had flown off of a boat. When his parents asked him the name of the boat, he said Natoma. The USS Natoma Bay was an escort carrier that was stationed in the Pacific during World War II. So then his parents asked him who he was, and and he would always say, me or James, which they didn't make anything of at the time. And one time they asked him who else was there, and he said, Jack, Jack Larson. Now this was all when he was two. And then when he was two and a half, his dad bought a book on Iwo Jima to give to his own dad. And they were looking through it one day when James pointed to a picture of of Iwo Jima and told his dad that that's where his plane had been shot down, which floored his dad. Uh, This little two-and-a-half-year-old was was talking like that, and then he learned that the Natoma Bay did, in fact, take part in the Iwo Jima operation. Eventually, he learned that there was only one pilot from that ship that was killed during the Iwo Jima operation. Uh, It was a 21-year-old from Pennsylvania named James Houston, and his plane crashed exactly the way that James had described. James said how his plane had been shot in the engine, uh, it had burst into flames, it crashed in the water and quickly sank, and that's exactly what happened to Houston's plane. And the pilot of the plane next to Houston's on the day that he was killed was named Jack Larson. Let's start from the beginning. 
Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood? Was it a normal childhood? Was it a turbulent childhood? I was perfectly normal except for that I lived with my past life memories very close to me. Of course, my parents didn't understand uh, at all what, what that was all about. So that was also uh, kind of difficult for me because I, the older I got, the more I realized that so-called normal people did not remember the past life and where they came from. So my only way to express myself with that was to write. How old were you when you first had these memories? And what were they? What were the first memories you, rem- you had? My mother later in life, she told me that when I was about three years old, I, when she called me and I didn't listen to her, and she said, you have to listen when I call you to come. Uh, and I said, yeah, but you have to call me my right name because my name is not Barbara. So she said, oh, so what's your name then? And I said, no, my name is Anna Frank, so, but you can call me Anna. And at that time, the Anna Frank diary was not published in Sweden. So, so she just dismissed it. There was other things happening as I grew up. I was four or five, and I refused to eat beans, and I pushed them away. I don't eat beans. I had enough of that last time. And I refused to take showers. I got totally hysterical when she tried to cut my hair off. If I saw a police officer on the street, I was hiding behind my mom. We have to go because he's going to take us. I was absolutely convinced up until I was about six or seven years old that my dad was going to come and pick me up. I was waiting for him every day. I told my mother that too, and so she was terrified, really. She even took me to a psychiatrist to figure out what was wrong with me. When I was 10, we went on a trip around Europe to the capitals of many countries. So Amsterdam was one of them. When we were there, of course, by then, my parents knew about Anne Frank diary, and they knew about me saying that I had been Anna Frank in my previous life. My father said, okay, let's go to that Anna Frank house now. So we have done that and have that overdone with. For some reason, I knew exactly where we were. And I said, we're only 10 minutes away. We can walk over there. But my mother said, let her show us then. If she's so sure about this, let's go and see where we end up. So we did, and I recognized where I was, and I knew that around the corner we would see the house on the other side of the canal. So when they saw that, of course, they were surprised. We went in, and uh, as we went up the stairs, that fear that I, that unreasonable fear that I had grown up with in my dreams just came over me like a big uh, mud wave. But I felt an urge to do it because I, I had my whole life knowing that this is the place where I lived in my previous life and now I was there and I I was not going to go back out again without going up and see my room and see what it looked like now. So we did. We came up there and we looked around and I was kind of relieved. I said to my mother, look, even the pictures are still there. And she looked around and she she looked and she said, "What, what pictures, what are you talking about? And, and then I couldn't see any pictures. When I looked again, I, there were no pictures. So you can imagine, 10 years old, and I didn't really know what happened. And I saw the pictures, and then the pictures were not there. So I started to cry, and I said, I promise you, Mom, they were there. I saw them. 
And so she walked over to the guide and she asked her and she said, you know, have there, are there any pictures on the wall here? Have there been any pictures and what kind of pictures? And the guide said, yes, uh, Anna Frank had pictures posted on the wall that was from movie stars and things like that that she admired from Hollywood. And uh, we just putting them behind glass and frames so we, we can preserve them because people tend to touch them. And that's what we're doing. They will be up soon again. And I think that was the moment when my mother totally have uh, had a, what you call aha moment or revelation that, oh my God, she has been telling me the truth the whole time. The memories stayed with me until I was about 15 years old and then they slowly disappeared. What is the working hypothesis to why they fade the way they do? We all lose our memories of early childhood, or virtually all of our memories of early childhood, uh, at around the time of, of age five or six or seven. Uh, so, for instance, uh, I've got a couple of little grandchildren where we're, we're clearly, my wife and I are in their long-term memories, but if something happened to us, our youngest is, is two and a half. He knows who we are. He's happy to see us. But if something happened to us tomorrow, by the time he was six or seven, he, he might very well not remember us. The brain, of course, is going through all kinds of changes at this age. And it's not that the memories necessarily get lost, it seems. But after a while, retrieving them becomes extremely difficult for, for the older brain to do. Uh, so with these memories, it makes sense. If you lose memories of early childhood, you would also uh, lose the memories of, of a past life. When did your story go public? I had a friend of mine who was a freelance journalist. She was a friend of the family and she was a friend of us. She had heard uh, occasionally that somebody made, maybe said something or there was you know, a joke made or something within the family. We talked about it and I was totally open with her because she was a friend. And then she wrote an article about that and she sold it to the biggest magazines in Sweden. And they blew it up in big letters. And it was uh, terrible. I lost my friend because I couldn't trust her anymore. I did not want that to come out. I was a police officer at the time, and I worked, and I had changed my last name because I didn't want to be recognized as Barbara Carlin. I wanted to have a private life. I didn't have any memories, really, and I was a perfectly normal person. I couldn't do anything to stop the, the articles. They came every day and every day and every day, and. And finally, I was just pounded to the ground where I felt like I can't, I can't even stand up in the morning. I can't get out of bed. And that's when the, the memory started to come back, and I could not make any sense out of it. I, I could not understand why the memories came back with such force and in different uh, stages of my previous life. Eventually, I came to the point where I was just going to, I felt like I'm going to give up. Why, why should I even try to fight this? And it went on to the point where I was just going to jump in the ocean, to tell you the truth. 
I was uh, driving to the beach. I was driving there, and I walked on the beach, and I was praying for help and for understanding, to understand what was going on and what I should do. At that moment, I really, I guess I just reached my higher self, or I got help from the universe, but I felt this voice inside me saying to me that they killed you in a previous life, they're not going to kill you in this life. We'll be back to talk about the self and its survival after these messages from our new sponsors. This is Hi-Fi Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Do you have any views about people who are trying to manipulate things in the world to try to extend their consciousness in some ways, like uploading themselves into microchips or anything like that? Or people who have their heads frozen after they die. Yeah, if you uploaded all your memories into memory chip, those memories exist, but it doesn't mean that you exist. So, you know, with these kids, they are not just reeling off rote facts. They are talking about things that certainly from their perspectives were experiences that they had. It's not just information or knowledge. It goes beyond that. So it sounds like you're saying that people are over and above just the list of memories. That's what it sounds like you're saying. Yes, exactly. There is little to agree about when it comes to the concept of a person. If you spend any time online, you'll know that people have been discovering lately that they physically resemble painted portraits from the distant past. In fact, I saw a slideshow where people snapped photos of themselves standing next to their doppelgangers from art history. None of these resemblances lead people to think that they're the reincarnation of some previous person. That's because we think physical appearances and resemblances, even when they're perfect, aren't the kind of thing that make for a particular person. But with memories, it seems different. For some reason, people tend to think that memories that resemble each other, maybe even perfectly, are a sure sign that we're talking to an incarnation of the same person. This led the philosopher, John Locke, to simply identify what it means to be a person with a totality of their memories. If two humans at two different times in history share the same memories, then they're incarnations of the same person. The identification of a person with their memories and conscious experiences, rather than their body, is what drives the plot of body-switching movies and all of the stories of reincarnation that Dr. Jim Tucker has studied. But upon closer examination, there are reasons to be wary. The idea that there are false memories is well studied, so much so that the criminal justice system is re-evaluating the weight that it puts on eyewitness testimony. From the perspective of the person doing the remembering, a false memory and a true memory are indistinguishable. They feel exactly the same. If this is true, then two different people can share the same indistinguishable memories, one of them true and one of them false, maybe even both of them false. And if that's right, then having the same memories don't make for incarnations of the same person any more than the sameness of physical appearance. 
the way out of the predicament is to give an account of what it means for a memory to be true rather than false. In real life, a false memory is one that just didn't happen to the person remembering. But look what I just said. I said the person doing the remembering. This person has to be something different from the memories themselves. The best candidate for this in real life is the very physical organism that stores memories and has experiences. If that is what makes a person a person, then there's no way for there to be an afterlife unless the same physical organism that dies somehow doesn't die, and nobody thinks that makes sense. And so you need to find something that is, well, something. Something which is not the memories, not the physical organism, and not even the physical brain. That has to be the thing that must survive in order for a person to survive. And most philosophers today think that there's no such thing. Maybe most scientists also. But Dr. Jim Tucker disagrees, and he has a conjecture. There are a lot of different ways, obviously, to interpret quantum physics, but one that many people have looked at is the idea that consciousness is fundamental and and that physical reality is secondary to it. In essence, consciously observing reality is what causes reality to come into existence. But if you then explore that idea with this question of can consciousness survive after someone dies, well, if you look at consciousness as being fundamental, then why would it be dependent, wholly dependent on the physical brain if, if in fact, physical reality grows out of it? This evidence in this work and in other fields, such as near-death experiences, uh, that this evidence that consciousness carries on uh, may, in fact, be correct, that consciousness does carry on. I decided to call up a philosopher of physics to help me sort through this, maybe even explain to me if reincarnation is consistent with quantum physics. I'm Alyssa Ney. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at UC Davis. Okay, so Alyssa, I want to get to the bottom of this idea that quantum physics allows, or maybe even supports, the idea that consciousness, the mind, or the self is separate from the physical brain or physical matter. Can you tell me, first of all, where this idea comes from? So I think the first person that made this kind of connection was Eugene Wigner in the 1960s. Quantum mechanics is special in that it allows material objects like atoms or electrons to go into states that are called superpositions. You're not going to get all the details of quantum mechanics from a few minutes on a podcast, But the important thing to know is that the laws of quantum physics tell us that electrons and other particles, on their own, will evolve into superpositions. That is, they have these weird properties, such as not being in any particular place at a certain time. The laws of quantum mechanics say that when a material system has properties like this, they will continue to evolve into more complex superpositions as they interact with other material systems. But it seems to come into conflict with our own experience of what we observe when we measure systems. So if you want to locate a system and see where it is, it's always going to be have some de- determinate location. 
What happens is when we look for an electron and take a measurement of its location, we will always find it in a determinate place. But the law said that right before we measured it, it was in a superposition. It was not in that place. In fact, not in any determinate place. And so what physicists have said traditionally, and this is still what appears in textbooks, is that quantum systems can evolve into superpositions, but when you measure them, they collapse out of them. In other words, the act of looking for an electron with an instrument makes that electron drop out of the superposition into the location where we end up finding it. What Eugene Wigner argued was that you can think of a room containing an electron and his friend trying to make a measurement as itself a single system. The electron goes into a superposition of sending a flash of light and not sending a flash of light. It doesn't have either, it doesn't have both. But now Wigner says, well, what about me? I'm outside of this laboratory. I haven't measured the particle, and I haven't talked to my friend either to ask him whether or not he's seen a flash or not. So what quantum mechanics says is, since I haven't taken a measurement, I have to say that my friend and the atom are still in the superposition. And so my friend is in a superposition of seeing a flash and not seeing a flash. So far, so good. But the question is, how can any human being be in a superposition of seeing a flash and not seeing a flash? That seems absurd, because if I go and I talk to my friend and I ask him, did you see a flash before I talk to you? Or were you in this superposition state of seeing a flash or not seeing a flash? Of course, a friend is going to say, no, if he saw a flash, he'll say, I saw a flash. And if he didn't, he'll say, I didn't. And so what Wigner says is what that's showing us is that conscious systems like ourselves are never in superpositions. What quantum mechanics shows us, according to Wigner, is that there's a fundamental distinction between conscious systems, and systems that he says are inanimate. Wigner's argument is that to make sense of the fact that humans always see things as having places, momentums, colors, and so forth, we need to postulate that human consciousness is what makes reality determinate. Quantum mechanics describes a world in which material systems without conscious observers will just evolve into more complex superpositions. Quantum mechanics plus a non-physical consciousness describes the world as we actually see it. And so we can't be materialists if we're going to accept quantum mechanics. If human consciousness is not reducible to electrons and protons or subatomic particles, then in principle it's something that can survive the death of a physical organism. Or can it? We still don't have a story about how that could happen and why memories would be preserved if it did. It's hard enough to preserve your memories when you have a functioning brain. How can it be preserved with no brain? Here's the philosophical paradox accompanying this story. Suppose there is a consciousness separate from the physical brain. If that immaterial consciousness really does get reincarnated, but with absolutely no memories or psychological traits, how is that incarnation me any more than any other thing is me, material or immaterial? So can I tell you now that we're coming close to the end of our conversation what this show is going to be about? Okay. 
At this point, I ran Dr. Jim Tucker's conjecture by Alyssa Ney. (laughs) And he's persuaded by some of these cases. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I almost wonder if what he's thinking is something about non-locality, though, because we didn't talk about non-locality. Quantum non-locality, or the idea that things that happen in one corner of the universe can simultaneously have an effect on another corner of the universe through something called quantum entanglement. Entangled states are states where you have two different systems, and there are these persistent correlations between the states of the systems, and those persist no matter how far you separate the systems in space. If one particle gets entangled with another into a superposition, then particle A and particle B are both in superpositions, or neither are. If some conscious mind ends up measuring particle A at one point in space and time and makes it drop out of a superposition, then wherever or whenever particle B happens to be, it too must simultaneously drop out of the superposition. These correlations that are produced by quantum entanglement might be able to capture these relationships between you now and somebody else very far away if your constituents, your particles, were entangled with each other. Here's another story. We have two beings across time being correlated with one another through quantum entanglement so that there's a memory transfer. But if it's a memory transfer... Does that make the new being a reincarnation of the first? Or just someone who gets a kind of quantum memory transplant? And how does a memory transplant make someone a reincarnation any more than a nose transplant? Somehow we have to put both of our quantum physics stories together. We need immaterial consciousness and memory transplants between the same consciousness at two different times all realized in two different organisms. Once we have that story, we have a story fully consistent with science. Right? All of these are out there hypotheses, but are they possible? Well, they're logically possible because they're consistent. Are they likely to be true? Are they consistent with the empirical evidence that we have? I wouldn't say that they're consistent with the empirical evidence we have, the best supported theories, most widely agreed upon among physicists and other people who think about quantum mechanics, don't appeal to any kind of fundamental conscious experiences. There are many other ways of understanding how systems go from superpositions to what look more like classical states, and we just don't need to postulate consciousness. Occam's razor. If you don't have to postulate it, leave it out of your theory. We don't need to postulate an irreducible conscious self. The best empirical theories today say the size and complexity of measuring devices are enough to explain the collapse out of superposition. Other theories actually say no collapse ever occurs. The world might well be one where everything, even us human beings, are in states of superposition all the time, 
It just doesn't look that way. Even the hypothesis that the universe splits into many universes at every superposition is taken more seriously than the one that says consciousness is immaterial. I'm Yuval Avnur, professor philosophy at Scripps College in Claremont, one of the Claremont colleges. Yuval Avnur is a philosopher who has recently been writing to defend the existence of the afterlife from the charge that all of scientific and philosophical arguments tell against it. I don't think there's any good reason to think that there isn't an an afterlife. I, I don't think there's any good reason to think there is an afterlife. In fact, I think that it's the kind of hypothesis or the kind of possibility that you couldn't possibly get any evidence for or against. One of the main targets of Avnor's reasoning is the appeal to Occam's razor. The simplest explanation of the world is that we are physical beings just like everything else. If that's true, then we should always believe that, by Occam's razor, over any belief that says there's the physical world and also immaterial minds or selves. Occam's razor, yeah, I don't think people are super clear about what they mean about it. Avnor thinks that any way you formulate Occam's razor, you can't get evidence that the afterlife doesn't exist. Don't add anything to your theory that you don't need in order to account for your evidence. Physicalism is the view that everything that exists is physical and describable in principle by the sciences, and nothing else exists. So it's a conjunction. Now I'm going to propose to you another view. It's just the first part. It just says physical stuff exists and behaves like science says it does. Period. It doesn't have, and nothing else exists. Which of those two theories is more elegant? The most likely view, according to Avnor, has to be that physical things exist, but we don't say anything about whether immaterial things exist or not. And in fact, you can prove that it's more likely, given the evidence, because it says less. Another version of Occam's razor doesn't rule out the afterlife, but for different reasons. Whenever you get some evidence, unless an entity is necessary to posit in order to account for that evidence, you should believe that it doesn't exist. This version of Occam's razor also seems to make sense. We posit that gravity explains why two objects attract each other. We don't posit that in addition, there are invisible gremlins that are pushing objects towards each other because gremlins are attracted to each other. We believe in gravity, and we believe that these gremlins don't exist. But Avnor does not like this line of reasoning. I have all kinds of objections to that principle. I think probably you do too. I think most people who take some time to think about it will. It can't be that I should be more confident in whatever hypothesis posits the least amount of stuff. Because then I would sort of start out believing Descartes' evil demon. <laughs> like, all there is is just a demon deceiver in my mind. And the two thing, two is way better than the trillions and gajillions of stuff <laughs> that science ends up telling me there is. So that, so that, that can't be right. So it must be more nuanced than just believe in as few things as possible. I want to ask you this for real. A priori, how likely is it, would you think, that all of reality and all that is interesting and sort of worthy of consideration in reality is accessible to humans? Pretty low. Pretty low. I think the point I'm making is kind of a Copernican point. Reality could well, and for all I know, most likely does, contain all kinds of amazing, weird stuff that I have no possible access to. 
If so, then why would I take my lack of evidence for something as evidence that it doesn't exist? I think that for a religious person who has a view about the afterlife, the significance of their life and the significance of certain events in their life all take place within the context of this assumption about the afterlife. And I think the same thing applies to people who are pretty sure that there's no afterlife, that it's just lights out. I think that that idea informs the way you think about time, informs the way you think about wasting your time, and informs the way you think about your interactions with your long-term loved ones, like your parents or your family or whatever. Among philosophers today, it is so widely assumed that the lights out theory is true that we don't talk about that part of the background when we talk about the significance of things. We just assume it. Um, in fact, explicitly, sometimes when people write books about the meaning of life and stuff, well, I'm just going to assume this life is all there is. Avnor is arguing that it should be an open question, always, no matter what we learn, that there is some way for us to survive the death of our bodies. The conclusion he's reached is that we don't know how this can happen, or whether it takes place by way of immaterial souls or reinstated memories, or some other way we can't envision or imagine. The central philosophical question about whether a surviving thing is an incarnation of the same person that was once alive, that doesn't bother him that much. Avnor thinks maybe we survive not as the same person, but as something else, something we know not what. But it bothers me. I want to know what it takes for me to be around, to have experiences after my own death. If it takes an immaterial soul, then that's what I want. If it only takes saved memories, then bring on the memory uploader. Knowing what it takes for me to survive is a way of me knowing what I am now. Can you tell me about how you think about Anne today? Do you think of yourself as Anne? Do you think of her as a distant past self? How do you think about it, the relationship? I, I am 100% Barbro today. I do not, don't walk around thinking about who I was in my previous life. I have learned from, from that lifetime. I have learned from this lifetime and... Uh, I have it all in my soul and in my higher eye. I, I am a perfectly normal human being uh, with both feet on the ground. What do you think is going to happen to you, like personally? Well, I will say this. I think if you look at our strongest cases as a group, that we do have good evidence that a significant part of us can survive after the brain dies. Certainly my hope is that I do. I don't have any particular expectation for what I personally will experience. You know, we're all here for a fairly short time and hopefully we can have meaningful experiences while we're here and, and then if a part of us continues on, that's great. But if it doesn't, then, you know, we just try to make the most of the time we do have here. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. This episode has been made possible by everyone who donates a dollar or more a month to support the show through Patreon. 
Special thanks to our high-level donors, James Cropcho, Nancy Bauer, Pamela O'Neill, Greg Poulos, Emily Baliestri, and Rick Grush. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.